For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson with our latest readout video from our Wednesday Wake Up newsletter. And we start this week on a solemn note with thoughts and prayers for the people of Ukraine under attack by Vladimir Putin. And we'll have more to say shortly on the question of Western nations deliberately taking themselves hostage to the Kremlin's natural gas supplies, yet another dangerous side effect of our leader's obsession with unicorn power in the field of energy as well as geopolitics. But for now, we want to talk about how the Canadian federal government deliberately put itself in a cleft stick over the rule of law. They recently imposed our kinder, gentler, modern version of martial law over a few rowdy anti-vaccine mandate protesters in Ottawa, instead of using normal police powers to clear those who stayed too long and broke some minor laws. And in the middle of this episode, a potentially murderous attack was carried out by environmental activists on a pipeline project out in British Columbia, the coastal gas link worksite near the town of Houston. An official Ottawa doesn't seem inclined to strike at the funding of environmental groups, even the ones on record hinting at anti-pipeline violence. Even so, the Trudeau administration is in the awkward position of now having either to push the pipeline to completion or to appear to be capitulating to genuine terrorism after losing its mind over an imaginary outbreak on Wellington Street. And their position's even more awkward because left and right alike can't understand their determination to exterminate and sustain the fossil fuel industry. In 2018, the feds actually bought the Trans Mountain Pipeline after environmental protesters had brought the expansion project on it to a halt. And you can't really blame a committed climate alarmist for wondering what possessed Ottawa to spend $4.5 billion on this pipeline from Alberta to the BC coast while promoting net zero. And you also can't blame a climate skeptic for wondering why they said this pipeline was crucial to the economy, but hydrocarbon energy as a whole was dispensable, had to go in fast. So now what? Well, with the government in charge, costs soared, and now the feds are saying they won't put in any more money, but they say they don't need to because it's been de-risked, a procedure you may not have known about. So now instead of putting in more public money, a public pipeline can just borrow money on the public credit. Unless no one is foolish enough to lend to a project that the government might lack the will to push through. So either the plan was for a super expensive funeral for the pipeline and possibly the rule of law, or they simply had no idea what they were doing and still don't. Either way, welcome to the green economy of the future. And it's all part of a kind of general muddle as these vague promises of new green technology and dramatic greenhouse gas reductions that were all fun and good have become problematic as it turned out that, as so often, objects in calendar are closer than they appear. So once again, we're being assured net zero will be easy, though it will also require boldness, innovation, and magic beans. Quote, can Canada realistically meet its goal of cutting greenhouse gas emissions by up to 45% within eight years? According to one of the country's largest business groups, the answer lies in making a few strategic decisions and doing so quickly, end quote. Thus spake a news story. And we went, wow, something you can do at a meeting. Phew. Uh, except the story in question concerns a report from the Business Council of Canada and quotes its president that, quote, it's going to be hard. It's going to be costly and policy matters, end quote. Which is it, easy or hard? And what few strategic decisions are we looking at? Ah, here's where the magic beans come in. Quote, it includes the aggressive pursuit of carbon capture and storage projects, expanding Canada's low carbon power grid, promoting R&D investment, and bolstering the country's role in North American supply chains for the growing wave of zero emissions vehicles, end quote. 
And speaking of meetings, quote, since December, the government has received about 20,000 public submissions as part of its overall process to build the national blueprint, end quote. So, if you wanted to read and ponder 10 submissions a day, it would only take you eight years, so you could then implement them all smoothly in two years, if you had magic beans. In other news, a friend recently wrote to suggest that we launch a game to see how far you could get into any story about bad weather before you have to read that it was about climate change. To which we responded that if we made that a drinking game, we'd have to issue a health warning. And now, a word from our sponsor. And that's you. Because at the Climate Discussion Nexus, we're dependent upon support from our viewers and our readers. Please go to our donate page, make a one-time pledge, or if you can, a monthly one. I'm not talking a lot of money, though. If you've got it, we'll take it. $2 a month, $3, $5. That's the sustaining funding that we need to produce these videos on our newsletter. And now, back to me. Though we do occasionally find a story that doesn't mention climate. Unfortunately, it's about stuff like, quote, winter storm moves east bringing heavy snow flooding, end quote. Because, as usual, a freak hot spell is climate change, whereas winter coming every year is just random weather. So I want to say, when we hear something like, quote, today is Ottawa's 20th day so far this year that hit minus 20 Celsius, double the February median of 10 days, we don't go, ah, a new ice age. We go, wow, strange stuff happens. But then we're weird. Oh, and by the way, on February 21st, Ottawa's string of February days with over five centimeters of snow petered out in second place overall, behind 1916, but tied with more years than fit on a chart, including 2010, 1971, 1927, and a bunch before 1927. So you get the picture. There is no picture. But if there were, it might be in an auction, and it might be a modern art masterpiece called Media Integrity on Climate that was just an empty frame. Because in an extraordinarily blithe announcement, the Associated Press just admitted that it will take money from the Rockefeller Foundation and others in order to peddle climate alarmism as news. In a press release issued by not to a news organization, quote, the Associated Press said Tuesday that it is assigning more than two dozen journalists across the world to cover climate issues in the news organization's largest single expansion paid for through philanthropic grants, end quote. Which actually won't change the content very much, to be frank. But there was a time when they would have thought such an arrangement needed to be hidden. Now they boast about it. AP Deputy Managing Editor Sarah Nordgren chortled, quote, This initiative, with the help of the Rockefeller Foundation and others, will enable us to closely examine efforts to cope with climate change, both the problems it poses and its potential solutions. Nope, nope, let us guess. It's all humanity's fault, and it all requires big government to fix, right? Journalistic standards? Avoiding the appearance of bias? Hoo-ha! Senior AP official Brian Caravellano said, quote, he's noticed a difference in morale in his organization because of the new growth achieved through new funding, end quote. And if you think morale went down because they blatantly sold out, uh, you don't know those newsrooms like we do. By the way, Caravellano's job title is AP head of, quote, investigations, enterprise, grants, and partnerships, end quote. So the guy in charge of investigative journalism is also in charge of finding money through donor partnerships which old-style reporters might call a conflict of interest if we had any of them around. And speaking of things that aren't there, we have to laugh because an Ernst Cliff Strategy Group report for Environment and Climate Change Canada, delivered September 10 of 2021, has apparently already been archived rather than trumpeted, 
because it was on, quote, public opinion research on extreme temperatures and alerting programs in northern Canada, end quote, but they discovered many people who live up in the Arctic couldn't wait for the heat they'd been promised. It was a lovely report, $69,371.43, including HST, worth of nuggets like, quote, a common attitude held by almost all participants was that they find extremely cold weather easier to handle than extreme heat, end quote. And if you're wondering what residents of northern Canada call extreme, well, they know from extreme cold. Quote, participants mentioned a range of anywhere between minus 30 to minus 50 degrees Celsius, end quote, which is between minus 22 to minus 58 if you live in Alaska, and holy cow, what if you live in Florida? If so, and you're planning a visit and have no brain at all, quote, participants acknowledged that at temperatures in that range, they would need to dress more warmly, end quote. So you've been warned. Now, as for extreme heat, Northern Canada style, quote, the hot temperatures at which participants feel uncomfortable range from the low 20s to 30s, end quote. So that's between 72 and 89 Fahrenheit, prompting, holy cow, what, from Florida again, but for a different reason. Anyway, the report stretches to fully 37 pages, thanks to generous margins and long appendices. But don't go away, because we're also assured that, quote, participants clearly distinguish between weather, current conditions, and climate change, the changes in weather observed over time attributed to human activity, end quote. As for changes in weather observed over time but not attributed to human activity, not a thing. Still, quote, while most are concerned about climate change, intensity varied, end quote. Some people claimed their ice road had cracked and their house had sunk into the tundra. And who could question such measurement of trends over time based on anecdotes from 52 people, only a quarter of them government employees, you know, instead of random rubbish like actual records of thermometer readings. Unfortunately, the report fizzled out with, quote, those who were less concerned about climate change explained that they were enjoying the warmer weather and opportunity to do more outside. A few also felt concerned about climate change was overblown and perhaps part of a historic warming period, end quote. Boo. Still, to assist in gauging this particular climate crisis, this week we took our sunburnt lands up north tour to Fort Simpson Northwest Territory, where we did find some warming. Just not in this century. January highs rose from between minus 20 and minus 30 in the 1930s to between minus 10 and minus 30 up to 1998, and then since then they stalled between minus 10 and minus 20. February did roughly the same, whereas March warmed between the 1890s and the 1970s, then settled down with average daytime highs between 0 and minus 10, so remember that thing about the clothing. We also continued our look at new, detailed, peer-reviewed analysis of extreme weather trends, in this case tornadoes. And while, yeah, we know it's boring because there's nothing to report, not everybody knows. So, after explaining what a tornado is for people who never saw the Wizard of Oz, they checked American records because the U.S. gets a lot and has the best long-term data, and they found an increase because of better detection in the form of Doppler radar and people with smartphones in real time. But if you take those factors out, you get a decline instead. Boring. Which brings us to a CO2.org archive, and in it, a report in a 2014 paper that found no actual trend, but computer models predicting an increase. Really? Wow. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, trying to strike another death blow against climate nonsense. <laughs>